1: Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation and with me is Paul Doroshenko. Hello <laughs> You always say hello like that it's kind do of creepy I? Each yeah time? you do each yeah, well, time I'll try
0: and mix it up next time. We hello. could like
1: go back in the episodes that you've been on and
0: you want to start it again start recording again no. and I'll go hello
1: no neither no, no. let's not make a bad thing worse. Let's just dive in hey there Hey now Oh God okay. Hey now. Hey now, Paul, did you catch the excitement out of the Court of Appeal recently?
0: Of course, I'm always watching the exciting action in the B.C. Court of Appeal. The B.C. Court of Appeal, having sat there many times, um, you know, I I suffer. And I, I would imagine that they suffer too because you can appeal anything to that level of court, um, you know, without any leave no, to appeal Is no that...
1: you need leave to appeal in certain circumstances you don't need leave to appeal basically anything that involves driving
0: yeah yeah
1: they really shot themselves in the foot with that when i'm waiting for the amendment uh that requires <laughs> me to get leave on irp cases
0: yeah i i get the sense when uh when we show up there that uh, the decision was already written um, quickly after the uh after the documents were filed
1: well, they read the factums, right? You file a factum in advance that sets out your argument, and then really, a lot of the oral argument is only if they have questions. Um, otherwise, it's really just a performance art piece.
0: That's an uh, that's a an interesting defense of them, Kyla. Yes, well, <laughs> there. it's a perform- performance art. Well, I mean, court is a ceremony, right? Anytime you go to court, there's that and ceremony you aspect. Wear
1: but... your, you know, your funny robes in the court of appeal, so it feels all ceremonious.
0: I always think the ceremony is better at the lower levels of court, where you've got regular people who are in there to, you know, face the court. That they should see the ceremony because it adds legitimacy to the process. And then here we are at the court of appeal, where it's like you and some judges. And uh, there you are, all robed up. Um, and there's nobody in there really to get the effect of the ceremony. I mean, for the you lawyers, talking, it's
1: not. You, you come and watch me.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, <laughs> and I cringe. I, I, I sit beside you, and <laughs> from time to time, I don't time. cringe. I don't cringe. I just it's. I get frustrated when I see that the decision was you know written beforehand, and they go out for. Twenty seconds, and they come back and
1: I know, but give you, a decision. You know, and
0: I and I, I really like, I, you know, and I don't agree with them most of the time when that happens. But. but
1: most of the time, they very politely listen to me, and their eyes look, you know, like okay, Miss Lee. Anyway, we're not buying Kyla, it.
0: you got to fight the good fight, and you yeah. keep doing it. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I'm always impressed by the fact that you do this because the people of British Columbia deserve it.
1: But it's interesting, actually, that you bring up before we talk about this judgment that you bring up. um, defending like me defending the court of appeals an interesting defense you said because there is a judicial justice of the peace right now facing a disciplinary sanction in Ontario for writing an editorial a scathing editorial criticizing the bail system there
0: yeah I didn't read the editorial and I've only seen the headlines about it but you know we know I mean across this country the bail system is a is a difficult to defend sometimes. And of course, we're lawyers, so we do our best to try and defend the justice system. In BC, I would say it's not nearly as bad as Ontario from Mm -hmm. what we hear.
1: Well, it was basically like a presumption in favor of detention being relied on by the Crown.
0: Even in the States, even under Donald Trump, there seems to be a new revisiting of the ridiculous concept of bail the way they've got it. Like, they're they're dropping uh, bail bonds and having, you know, big cash bail and things like that because they've realized it's just, like, it's ridiculous. People do come back to court. You don't have to have money riding on it.
1: Yeah. But anyway, I, I just think it's really interesting because for me... I think we should be allowed to be way more critical than we are allowed to be about the courts and the justice system and if we see something that we think is wrong because we're the ones who are best positioned to understand why it's wrong and to see it day in and out and yet we can't, we're we you know, hamstringed in that we can't say anything
0: yeah well this has been discussed uh, in um, by lawyers across the country but really like our freedom of expression is greatly restricted by the code of professional conduct that doesn't let us criticize a court or tribunal and i get that to the you know because the court can't you know come out and defend itself but and they and I- do
1: the chief justice of the bc sure. supreme court published an article an op-ed in the vancouver sun earlier this year it was a good one
0: too it was, it was, really well it was done. excellent
1: yeah. but why can't that be like why can't we have a shift where lawyers speak out judges speak out they talk about this. I mean, even the the Supreme Court of Canada, you know, indicating that they're not going to release their debates, the records of their debates on judgments until 50 years later. We don't even get to see how justice is done.
0: I guess what bothers me is that our freedom of expression is greatly restricted by this provision of the Code of Professional Conduct, which keeps us from criticizing courts and tribunals. And you and I spend quite a bit of time defending the -hmm. decisions of courts and tribunals and, you know, properly so because it's, you know, particularly when it's in within our realm of practice. Right. Um, and, and that's fine, you know, that's all well and good, but it really like, you know, there's times that we see things that deserve public rebuke and we can't do it except if we are willing to face, uh, you know, discipline, uh, you know, profession, disciplined by our professional body. And it's frustrating and I, I you know I get it that we should we can't be willy nilly or or capricious in our in our criticism, but, but, but we shouldn't at, we should still be able to be free to express it.
1: But look at Ontario, where you have this this broken down bail system where people are being detained Most of them are being detained when the law is supposed to operate in favor of your release unless it's absolutely necessary to detain you. Where there was this overwhelming use of sureties, which are meant to be closer to the last resort line, and which lots of people didn't have. And prosecutors who were taking this this incredibly hardline stance, which is not even consistent with their roles as quasi ministers of justice. How can you not, when you see that, which is, as the Attorney General's now come out and said, essentially an injustice, how can you not say something? And I, I applaud that judicial justice for doing what she did.
0: I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, I I, I think if you're there and that's your role, you sort of have a right to speak up. I mean, you've got an obligation rather to speak up. There's times we see injustice and I think we have an obligation to speak up. And I'm, I'm, I'm Glad for it, but I haven't read the editorial, so I, you know, I don't want to gush over it, but I, I still think that there are times in our lives when we have an obligation to speak up, and, and I would accept that this person is in a position to be able to say that and assume that they're rational, and that's what they did. I start with the, I sort of start with the presumption that people are decent, I guess. Fair enough. But, but you know, I was thinking about this the other day, the extreme. Okay, you think of the prosecutors in Ontario and I've had this here too with prosecutors in British Columbia where they take an extreme position on something, on bail for example. And I found that if I take the reasonable position and they're taking the extreme position, then my client won't get the reasonable result. Uh Often the judge will tend to go somewhere in the middle. And Uh it's upsetting for me because then I find I'm better off to take the extreme position and they're taking the extreme position, and then it ends up going with the reasonable position that you know is appropriate. And, but that's—I
1: mean—that's all part of your role to to zealously advocate for your client, is to take that extreme position where it's appropriate to do so.
0: I know, but I mean, I, at the same time, I think I'm a I'm a I'm an officer of the court. My obligation is to go in there and tell them what is appropriate, not the extreme position, and have them cut it down the middle. And it's frustrating for me as a lawyer. To see that when I've taken the extreme position, there have been many times that I could say, um, you know, I ended up with a better result because they they cut it down in the middle back where I would have, you know, spoken for in the beginning. Having said that, I heard about a prosecutor who was very sick uh, today Um, and um, I remember him phoning me on one case and saying, this is exactly what it's going to be. And he was, he was exactly right. And we ended up going to court Mm -hmm. to say the exact same thing. Like he phoned me on the first day when I got this file and he said, this is what your client did. This is the law on it. This is what it's going to be. And he took the extreme, you know, he was a, uh, this person is very serious and, and, and skilled lawyer, uh, but certainly didn't take an extreme position, uh, in that circumstance, despite the fact that I think probably personally, you know, he was of the view of the extreme position, which, you know. People right. feel that way
1: well i mean there's some lawyers who definitely have a real talent for picking up a file and going this is exactly what's going to happen and
0: well we do that all the time but mm, yeah you know, this was uh this was uh with impaired driving cases if you're a lawyer and you don't do them or you know a lot about them you know that not many people know that much about them mm-hmm. and we're often educating prosecutors as we go along so we might know where the thing is going to go, we can pretty much predict it from the first read of it. Right, uh, you know, so long as you can explain it to the court properly, um, you can you, you you know where it's going to go. Yeah. Uh, but it's I, like, in that know. case, this was not an impaired driving case. It was something, you know, that was, a, a, my client was facing a jail sentence and it was a, you know, significant, significant offense.
1: Yeah. Like half the time I'm picking up the phone and saying to the prosecutor, you know, I'm going to ask this and your officer's going to say this. And then I'm going to ask this and your officer's going to say this. And then he's going to be in a trap and the whole thing's going to fall apart.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. And they don't believe me. I know, but you can predict it. Yeah. You know, you can lay it out. Anyway. I but- found that within a year or two of practice that I could. I could tell them I knew what was going to happen.
1: But, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen with this judgment about the mandatory impound because I really thought it would go the other way. And the Court you, of Appeal. Yeah. You know. Do you want to guess which way it went?
0: Um, well, they probably went for the government because uh, one of the things I've noticed with the Court of Appeal in British Columbia, and this isn't a criticism, I just mean it as an observation of a trend, is that uh, they pretty much will agree with whatever the position of the government is.
1: Well, it's hard because we deal with administrative law and the reasonableness standard, but this case was really interesting because what the challenge was, was that taking somebody's car, and there's a mandatory seven-day, as you know, seizure of a car if you get For charged. For excessive speeding. Yeah, if you yeah. get charged Second with excessive speeding. of the
0: Motor Vehicle Act.
1: So if you take someone's car for 7 days the argument was that that violates your right to be presumed innocent and it violates your um your section 8 rights to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure because they're you know taking your car and there's no review process for a 7-day impound set out in the motor vehicle act
0: Yeah it's analogous actually to the uh, automatic license suspension system that they had in Alberta that was struck down because it was tied to another offense that was later going to be dealt with in court. And in that circumstance, they actually had a review procedure, and in our circumstance in B.C., There isn't a review procedure, which arguably makes it much worse.
1: But the Court of Appeal found that there is because there's this, yes. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, really, Paul. There is this super random section buried in like section 261 of the Motor Vehicle Act that says if your car is impounded, you can apply to the commissioner of the RCMP to have your car released. Now, there's no explanation of how those applications would take place, in what circumstances, what the commissioner would consider, how you make that application, whether the commissioner of the RCMP is ever going to actually look at it, and certainly not within the seven days, but because that exists, they said it created an administrative scheme. Oh my god. Yes, come on. It created, Seriously, it, so it's the impound is actually an administrative action, um, and therefore it's not unreviewable and it's reasonable because it's rationally connected to the objective of roads and highways. Oh my highway god! Safety. Oh mm-hmm. my god!
0: You know, the uh, lawyers for the government often will drag out some never to be used or never intended to be used or never used section of the Motor Vehicle Act or in the Criminal Code or something. To say that you know there is a remedy available oh yeah you can you can apply to bc supreme court therefore there's a remedy available therefore this can't be unconstitutional or therefore and it's, it's it's ridiculous I'm surprised sometimes that they can say it with a straight face but. Well
1: I just don't understand how the courts Don't go well hold up I mean is that really Any of this ever a feasible Remedy like the whole like the whole background In Sivia and Goodwin right the challenge The constitutional challenge to the immediate roadside prohibition Scheme was that it wasn't A reasonable opportunity to challenge The apparent results of the SD not just Some opportunity but a reasonable one And here you don't have a reasonable opportunity To challenge the impound You have some nebulous suggestion that there might be um, with no mechanism in place and I don't think the Commissioner of the RCMP even knows about this.
0: Well I'm not allowed to criticize uh, our Court of Appeal. But But I
1: can criticize the Motor Vehicle Act.
0: I can criticize the Motor Vehicle Act for the lack of a review procedure for it and uh, the you know the way that everybody sort of gets around it and I think that the court really the real reasoning is it's only seven days. That's their theory about it. But I'll tell you, one of the very first people I had who phoned me with one of those excessive seven-day impounds, it was days after the legislation came into effect. It was like a Thanksgiving-long weekend. They were driving their minivan to Calgary with the whole family, like three kids in the minivan, loaded up with all of their stuff. The speed limit dropped from 100 or 110 down to 80. They were you know, lawfully passing a truck in a passing lane when the speed limit dropped they couldn't see the drop in the speed limit sign and the police officer said they were two kilometers out uh, an hour over the 40 plus mm-hmm. took the minivan for seven days yeah and the family phoned me uh you know the father was in tears on the phone with me and they were obviously people who were not affluent it was you know this was their big trip they didn't take a vacation over the summer because they were saving to take their thanksgiving trip and they had their vehicle impounded for seven days and now they were stuck in revelstoke or something like that
1: it's absolutely and I, and I, heinous
0: no well, and i couldn't you know i'm here i am again one of these jobs that we have as lawyers is to defend the justice system and there's you know, no justice that, there I know, well that was an injustice system and i couldn't defend it and i have to be honest so back to back to the conflict between criticizing the system criticizing the court or upholding the justice system i mean my my duty to the justice system is, is uh, you know, is subject to my obligation, to be honest.
1: I don't understand why they can't just write in a small amount of discretion to a peace officer, like just exercised by the officer roadside to not impound a vehicle if the officer is satisfied on reasonable grounds that it would cause undue hardship to the owner
0: then you're giving the power to the police officer and that's a problem but you're
1: not i mean i talk to so many police officers and you have too who think that it's completely bonkers that they would take away a family vehicle from a family that is you know struggling to pay their rent or struggling to put food on the table that they would take away the vehicle from somebody who needs it to keep their job when they're on the verge of losing their house or whatever the case may be you know to, this this These mandatory impounds and the associated costs and the associated, you know, lack of a vehicle for people has significant negative effects on people's lives. And sure, if you're driving your Lamborghini from your home in the British properties down to your, you know, job at a Bentall Tower in downtown Vancouver and you're going 40 over as you're coming down the cut, take away your stupid car and and take it for seven days. You don't deserve any discretion. But... The example you gave, the you know, the first person you talked to about this, how is that doing the public any service?
0: Yeah, I know. I know. I, it just pains me greatly. I can think of review procedures they could come up with too. Uh, well, there's been those absurd cases where I found out that people were like 41 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's the case that we know of a police officer told us another officer caught the person at like 38 kilometers an hour over the speed limit but then decided that they their uh, skills in geometry would lead them to conclude <laughs> that it was greater about. than 40 kilometers yes. an hour over the speed limit, and that person's vehicle was towed, I don't and they that got an officer. Excessive...
1: Has any math degree, to my knowledge?
0: Yeah. Well, in any event, I mean, we know that there can be abuses there, and we know that there should be some sort of flexibility there. But uh, and I and there should be a real review process. I mean, why not just have somebody on the phone? From the superintendent's office.
1: Some guy to answer the phone twenty four seven. The same way they have them for the street racing. in imp- well, um, judicial
0: and stuff. the justice center. Yeah, there's yeah. you know have somebody who can someone. take it and and a police officer can phone and say you know they were forty five if it was less than fifty.
1: Fuck! I'll take those calls.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know.
1: <laughs> Ask him what he earns.
0: You know <laughs> what's what? he driving? Yeah. What's he earn? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Ask a few questions. I put the person be on kids the line does with he have? Yeah. yeah.
1: Exactly. It's, I mean, it's really not that hard to determine who needs their vehicle and who doesn't. I mean, we sit down with people all day, every day, and determine who actually needs to drive. And
0: if The government of British Columbia wants me to hire me to do that. I'm happy to do it. I'll, uh, I'll be the new adjudicator for uh, excessive speeding. You could have a real review process. Hey, by the way, it's a different government than the one that brought in that piece of legislation. The NDP criticized it before. Now, Mike Farnworth, David Eby... You could fix that up.
1: You could. You could, but have they fixed anything they criticized before? Anything at all?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, they're addressing the housing issue, but anything on the driving side, no. No. You know, and it's it's really like, I don't think people are really on side. The government always assumes that coming down harsh on on uh, driving offenses is going to lead people to be supportive of the government and if they appear soft they're not and I don't think that's the case I don't in think BC in BC we you know I, I lived in Alberta for years I I studied in Manitoba I lived in Quebec for a while and I'll tell you in BC we have a lack of visible enforcement but when you're caught they come down on you like a ton of bricks and I don't think that's really that effective. I really think that people would be more supportive of a greater police presence. And I don't think that people are really inspired by confidence when they come down on you with a seven day impound.
1: Well, people are also encouraged, just generally, like as a social obligation, to behave better when they're treated fairly. Yeah,
0: well, that's Um, something you and I have been harping upon for like. Six yeah. years already, yeah, well, and there's studies, not changing. there's studies that we found a few years back that justified that, and we made a lot of noise about it. It's kind of a tired it's a topic for it's us, but our,
1: our big void that we constantly scream into.
0: More education and uh, more visible enforcement, and but you know what, the uh, I think some other people have started picking up that topic. Maybe uh, maybe it will become more popular in the future. I guess I'm kind of worn out about. Crying for that.
1: Well, we're cynical. Yeah, well, I'm. Yeah. I'm uh, finding a fact against me is cynical. We're so. both <laughs> cynical. Well, yeah, you've had a judge actually
0: ruling a decision.
1: Probably, that's fine.
0: cynical, but you know what? Yeah, your cynicism is your cynicism be. is well well founded. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and you know this this impound judgment it, it supports my cynicism. I would have thought, as you did, that this is exactly what the Alberta Court of Appeal considered with the AALS. Turns out it's not. I think the door is still open there because it doesn't look like the Court of Appeal considered or had that decision brought to their attention. So um, y'all are on notice. I'm coming for (laughs) you.
0: Well, it's funny, actually, how you internalize it and, and work with it by saying it turns out it's not. Whereas I just look at it and I think, you know what, the court's just wrong. Yeah, well, different it's a different way of coming at it. I just think the court's wrong, and you know, that's I've got to live with the fact that I have no choice but to live with this court. I'm not a free man of the land, but I, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't accept that the court is always correct. Whereas you internalize it, uh, operate under the assumption the court is correct, and figure out how to use it in some other way.
1: Or I or you operate, it. or I operate on the assumption that the court was correct on the basis of the law and argument presented to them at the time, but that there is something perhaps they missed or didn't know about.
0: You're much more generous than I am. I worry about being accused of criticizing the court.
1: Well, I'd defend you if you were. Yeah. It's fine. Anyway, the other very interesting case that came out this week that I thought we should talk about was A strange application by an unidentified individual who went by Mr. XXXXXXX who wanted his blood samples that were taken from him in an impaired driving investigation back. So what had happened was he was investigated for impaired driving. His blood was taken in the course of that investigation. And ordinarily, when the Crown seizes something, they can keep it for three months without applying for to court
0: for an extension, yeah. yeah.
1: And after the three months, they have to apply for an extension. They didn't do that in this case. It was
0: a long time, actually. They had that blood for a long time, didn't they? Had
1: they had it for a long time. And they tested it outside three months, which, as you know, is inherently problematic anyway.
0: Yeah, you already have some... Pretty lousy evidence at I'm that point. I'm not
1: eating the prosciutto that's been in my fridge for three months. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but anyway. How well preserved is it? How much preservative? Can, yeah, you could. You how put much preservative lot, can you put in there and it's still, it still? There's a lot it, no. of
1: preservative well, in bad. prosciutto, but.
0: Yeah. Um, I take a look at those, uh, wieners that I buy my children and, uh, when they're still like three weeks before the best before date, I don't know that I want to serve them. I usually throw them out.
1: There were some hot dogs in the, uh, the office fridge that were so old. I wouldn't even feed them to my dog.
0: You know what? You feed them to the, uh, seagulls out back. If you feed them to the seagulls behind They'll the building, die. no, the seagulls will, will not, uh, defecate on your car, but are the, the, uh, the janitor in our building has proven that he's built a strong relationship with the seagulls behind the office back to the blood
1: yes back to the blood um so he brings an application to court for return of his blood but he provides no basis for this just they've had my blood for too long i would like it back please thank you
0: yeah well i mean what surprised me was that the media picked it up and actually i was surprised okay here's what surprised me
1: that it wasn't on my radar when it came out
0: no. What surprised me is that the judge declined to make the order to return the blood. I mean, it was a long time past.
1: But the law says that they're entitled to the extension so long as they require it for the investigation, which was ongoing.
0: But it was like over a year, I think.
1: But if it's a case involving a death or bodily harm, you've you've seen them.
0: Where it's- I still think that they, you know, this is the thing, okay? We're talking about a piece of you, a bodily substance. It contains your DNA, uh, contains other evidence. But at this point in the sequence, the value of the evidence is frail uh, beyond belief. And the the pro- possibility, the, prob- the, the 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 mere possibility of being prosecuted on the basis of that shitty fucking evidence at that point... Just leads me to conclude I mean if I was the judge you know of course I know a lot more about blood maybe than many of the judges but if I was the judge I'd be sitting there going like really I mean where's the confidence back to confidence in the justice system they did
1: they had tested it now so you know they've got the results yeah they tested it outside three months and those results you know if that guy ever gets a good lawyer will probably not be admissible um good lawyer good expert um But they'd already tested it, but I wonder if, you know, there is still a reason to keep the blood because inspecting the vial, the color of the stopper, telling you which type of preservative is in the vial, all of those things you need to know. It's supposed to be an approved container to know whether it was taken into an approved container would require um, inspecting the container.
0: But at this point in the process, you're thinking to yourself, they have screwed it up so bloody badly that I want that evidence to be able to preserve it. I don't trust those. No. no. No.
1: The motive was to try and thwart the impaired driving investigation. But they'd already
0: tested it, right? It
1: doesn't matter if, he, if his you're, application you're, is are you're, you're,
0: you're, you're ascribing a motive to somebody. i cynical. You're ascribing a motive to somebody without knowing what their motive was. The decision did not indicate what their motive was. The application
1: May, didn't indicate the motive.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, but the point here is that, you know, some people just don't want the government to have their DNA. Some people just feel that, you know, it's a violation of that their bodily substance is there and it's not being, uh, maybe you could be looking at it and saying that my bodily substance has been taken by the police and they're disrespecting it by not testing it properly. Sure, there's some, some religions that require soaked, you to be not buried Not just whole. a religion, you know, but also it could be a religious issue. I can think of lots of reasons why that uh, the, I would want to have that blood back. I mean, personally, maybe not me, but I can think of a lot of reasons why people would want to have that blood back. Number not one... just trying to thwart the investigation. This is the number simply. one
1: reason I'd want it back. If they hadn't tested it in three months, I'd be like, I would like my that's, blood back, that's please. That's you and me. Yeah, well, you that's,
0: no, that's you and me, but I, I get that. I'm just saying that I can think of significant, legitimate reasons people would have to want to have that blood back. And I am suspicious enough, I've seen enough stupid things done by the police that I'm suspicious enough that I would be looking at it and thinking to myself, you know what, I don't trust them with my blood. I don't trust them with my blood. I don't trust them not to spike my blood. They've had my blood this long. Put some ethanol in there, some damn thing.
1: Well, at that point, if there's a little bit of ethanol in there, it's probably now a lot bit of ethanol.
0: Who knows, without a preservative and sitting that long, you have no idea what it would be. I mean, it's... Well,
1: if it was an approved container, it would have a preservative, but it's not in... Like, it doesn't preserve it forever.
0: No, I know. I mean, I you know... Again, you and I have done more than the average lawyer probably in our in our investigations into the reliability of blood. But yeah. you know, that doesn't mean that the court is going to understand all of that. And again, you know, if you're coming at it and you're thinking to yourself even as the person's lawyer, um, you know, why would I why would I continue to allow the RCMP to uh, hold on to this evidence that they that they haven't properly uh, you know dealt with up until this point.
1: The other interesting thing about that judgment, and you've kind of touched on this already, is that the judge didn't grant the application. And I don't say that because I don't like there was no basis for it, and so why would you grant it? But there was no basis for it, and Mister X was self represented. He didn't have a lawyer arguing this for him. The court in those circumstances has a duty to provide as much assistance um, to an applicant as is necessary to make their case heard. And if he didn't articulate well enough for the court why he wanted his blood, is it, is it possible that that was a, a failure uh, on the court's part to assist
0: I provide a great deal of leeway in my assessment of what obligation the court has to assist people. And I don't mean that to just enforce the the um, suggestion that people should be represented by counsel and should go and find a lawyer and hire them. My concern is that I don't think, you know, the court is not going to be a, have necessarily particular expertise in any area of the law the court is going to try to assist people but the court doesn't know what's going on in somebody's mind and why they're doing yeah, but it I,
1: but that's There's the easiest question to ask lean back in your chair and go why on earth do you want your blood back sir
0: you know i, I that's a cross-examination and the person standing there they're not in the witness stand you know they're making an application there in court. I, I, I you, you know, have to maybe provide they, a
1: foundation well, for an I, application. Well, I think I
0: think that's the probably the problem there in that case was that they didn't provide the foundation for the application. But the uh, we're talking now about the obligation of the court to assist, and you know I don't think that uh, you know I'm not going to judge the court harshly for not stepping forward and and trying to you know basically act as a as defense counsel or you know i guess in this case prosecuting the application um you know i am not i'm not i'm not going to judge the court harshly there's, there's there's limits to what you can do when you're sitting up there on the bench i'm assuming it's not a job i'll ever have but
1: yeah. <laughs> or want
0: yeah but uh, that's if maybe, i ever had to like, too reasonable
1: i just don't ever want to have to sit through like a securities law thing can you imagine I I would be don't, like, even,
0: don't even don't even start talking about the idea of no. being a judge. I Oof, just the thought of being a judge I I it, it's just one of the most is it, it, a job that doesn't appeal to me in any no. way shape or form.
1: No, I'll go sandwich artist before I go uh BC Supreme Court judge. You'd be good though. I I'd, I'd be a great sandwich artist. Thank you.
0: Yeah. It yeah.
1: would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but um, we've dealt with sort of applications in this in this context, loosely related to this.
0: Uh, is uh, you know can the, I can't remember now. I've made these applications for release of things seized after the ninety days. Actually, it was one of the very first things I did when I was a lawyer. It was a snowmobile in Squamish, hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I sent faxes all over the place, and that uh, got things moving. But the um, the uh, can you apply? You know, there, there's the, their order isn't indefinite, so you can apply again. This person can make the take their shot a second time.
1: Sure, maybe they should call a lawyer, and yeah. provide a foundation Found- for the application. Yeah. Well,
0: I can think of lots of reasons anyway.
1: I can think of lots of reasons too.
0: Now I feel like I'm soliciting that client so let's move on. Kyla you had something else. I'm just saying that it's not indefinite and anybody who's listening to this should know that uh, they can they can take another shot.
1: Well I wanted to talk about something that was sort of proximate to those types of applications because it reminded me of one that I did um, and I've got to sort of follow-up on that type of application soon um, but one that I did using blood analysis in the drug context.
0: It's like this should be a Halloween episode or something. Blood, it's all blood.
1: It's been blood for three weeks, man.
0: Yeah, I guess it has. Well, yeah, we're thinking about blood after we got back from Texas, but we were thinking about blood before that. we got a number of blood cases coming at any given time. Um,
1: and with, uh, with, actually, that's more important to talk about, marijuana legalization on the horizon, blood cases are going to be a big deal.
0: Yep. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Well, I mean, we're ahead of the curve. Um, talk, <laughs> talking yeah. about blood beforehand. I mean,
1: we created the, this this precedent in this case that I did about um, about getting certain information about the analysis of drugs, which is totally applicable in the blood drug or alcohol testing context.
0: Well, yeah. So if you're a lawyer and you've done drug trials and you've done uh, blood impaired trials, you know that you got a certificate. And the certificate either comes from Health Canada or it comes from the RCMP Forensic Lab. And, you know, when I first started, uh, we would get the certificate and we'd look at it and we'd go, oh, my goodness, there's the blood alcohol concentration. You'd think to yourself, well, my that's it. The was really They're, drunk. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we got a big problem here. Here's the certificate and this is what it is. And, you, you know, you didn't really think beyond that because it was just a sheet of paper that had the reading on it. And, uh, of course, we started thinking beyond that. Lots of, we weren't the only lawyers, there's lots of lawyers probably thinking well beyond that. But most of the time, I would succeed in those cases because there'd be some charter violation that would rule that blood inadmissible. And it wasn't a result of the testing It was a result of a right-to-counsel violation or something like that, so that the the blood would not be admissible when it came time for the trial. And then, you know, Kyla and I, I think we talked about this in a previous episode, started learning more about blood and the way that they do blood in the United States because they take blood draws in all sorts of cases in the States, and we learned a lot about the testing procedure, which led to us thinking about asking for more information from the RFCMP lab, which led Kyla to conclude not only should we be asking about information on the testing of the blood, we should start asking for information on the testing of drugs when it's Health Canada testing some drug and coming to the conclusion that it's a drug. And what we learned actually in Texas was was fascinating because yep. like, you know, there, there are
1: there like 4000 ways you could contaminate something and Get a positive result for a drug,
0: and there's lots of drugs that will will give the uh, chemical analysis that's yeah. identical to some other chemical. So you it'll come out once the uh, it's been processed by the mass spectrum chromatography, uh, and it'll give the same chemical signature as something that's not a drug or that's not that's not uh, an offense to have. Which is codeine mean, codeine has thirty different things that are that are known. Uh, to give the same chemical analysis as codeine, and and you know that's as codeine, that's all the other you know.
1: Yeah, which is why why you need the you know GC and MS together.
0: So, which is why we started asking for
1: all this disclosure.
0: Yeah. So Kyla asked, and it was a case in B.C. Supreme Court sitting in New Westminster. She said, look, we should be able to get the, we should be able to see the the results from the lab test. We should, you know, it produces a graph. We should be able to see that graph. We should be able to see the steps and the records and the notes that Mm -hmm. led to the testing. Give me a working file. How they stepped it down. You know, did they, how did they come up with a standard? Show us how they, you know, show us their notes. Show us their work, you know. About you don't
1: even know that it was, I mean, in my, when I went and made the application, the Crown at that point had refused to even tell me whether or not it was tested using gas chromatography or liquid chromatography. Like, could you at least tell me how they determined what it was?
0: Tell me the machine, the what? make, the model of the instrument. They what call it an instrument. It's a machine. instrument
1: was it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the the very basics of the testing method. Like, come on.
0: I know. Right? It's just, And it's kind of one of these stupid, polite things that we do in Canada. Oh, okay, uh, Health Canada, oh, the federal government, they can't be wrong. Health Canada tested it. Therefore, you know, you see all these lab scandals in the states where they get all this disclosure uh, and they find out that there's all sorts of problems. And in BC, we used to just believe the test results on the BAC data master. And then we started getting all of this information showing problems with the thing. When we started making FOIs on it and we found out that, you know, we've been politely accepting that the results were correct, uh, for years when there was no reason to do that. I mean, you've mm-hmm. got to be cynical. Yeah. Kyle Lee. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Um, and my cynicism pays off but it's really going to pay off big time when we're dealing with some of the first drug impaired driving cases well
0: you set the precedent with that decision it was a good decision um so the disclosure was ordered from the health canada lab
1: yeah not and- everything i wanted but i had leave to ask for more based on what i got
0: yeah but ultimately you succeeded in that case for other reasons but the uh you know it was it was an important decision and i'd say it's the first one Dealing with that, that anybody could find, mm-hmm. uh, so that's uh, you know it's a feather in your hat. I'm proud of you for that one. That was good, but it was using the um, you know it was a, it was a development of the case law from a decision called Figura um, and an equivalent decision in Alberta that led uh, to the disclosure of records related to breath testing.
1: Well, also the presumptions in the criminal code and the challenge to the presumptions in Regina and Saint Ange la Yeah,
0: yeah. Anyway, development of the law, working the right way, uh, going in the can right direction. F-
1: thank Driving Law for development of drug law. Yeah, exactly. Driving Law. Driving the law.
0: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, Kyla, you were uh, prescient when you came up with the name for your <laughs> podcast, then.
1: It was intentional. Uh, I keep telling you, I thought about it.
0: Yeah, I know. Um,
1: oh, no, okay. So, but in the drug context because we did we sort of touched on it very briefly last week but we didn't get into the details of this the drug impaired driving legislation in c45 and c46 has been passed and they've got these nanograms per milliliter thc limits
0: i think we could do a whole show and we We probably should do a whole show just on i can't believe that cannabis is going to be legal. I can't believe that cannabis is going to be legal. And we could probably do a whole show on what happens if you're charged with a cannabis-related offense between now and October 17th. um, Which frankly is probably you just delay it until after october 17th
1: no, but, but i just i just wanted to spend a few minutes on why we're, it's... we're never going
0: to get to those things because history's already moved on <laughs> you know so we might as well talk about the nanograms let's get just on to the nanograms how what, many nanograms? no
1: i want to talk about the nanograms in more detail later what i want to talk about is why it's so important to challenge your blood analysis under oh, yeah. c46 yep
0: yeah. so uh you know that the the, the the 2.5 nanograms is ridiculous because, I mean, it's ridiculous. Should mm-hmm. I, do I have, need to explain it? Audience, no. you don't need to know why it's, it's ridiculous. ridiculous. It's we'll ridiculous. We'll get to that. But the, um, Just accept. Know, the, the possibility or, or you know, even the, the likelihood in some circumstances that the results are not going to be reliable, uh, especially when you're talking about that small amount of um, is uh, is significant and a uh, major concern. And I don't see how you could prove beyond a reasonable doubt if your lawyer is going to get all those lab test results and figure it out. What they're is in it, the like position to figure two, it
1: out. Two teaspoons of sugar in an Olympic, Olympic-sized Olympic swimming I pool? I think it was one and a half. One you and a half. It out. Yeah. yeah, teaspoons of sugar in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. So if
0: you had one and a half teaspoons of concentrated THC in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. But then, remember, you're not testing for THC. You're testing for chemicals that break down out of THC. Yes. So it's not like ethanol. So alcohol, you consume alcohol, goes into your blood, it floats around there, it's metabolized in your in your stomach by a couple of enzymes and then in your liver and then your kidneys remove some. Some is a very small amount probably taken out, who knows, by your muscle tissue. But it remains alcohol in your body as it's being eliminated during you know the process of your body breaking it down, cannabis is different. It yep. it, it breaks down into into component chemicals. It breaks down into you know different uh, different uh, substances. Well, and, oh, so and then they
1: add them all up and say there's some THC. Well,
0: that's because they're looking at some graph from a gas chromatograph or a liquid uh, mass spectrum chromatography system, and they're coming to some conclusion. And they're always Exists in those cases a decision made by the lab tech. Mm-hmm. There always exists somebody measuring else measuring the space making a decision. Piece. Yep, and you're thinking to yourself they're abdicating the decision making process of the court.
1: Yeah, well, and this is why it's so important because there are now going to be presumptions. So you do the full drug recognition evaluation. Testing, all of the 12 steps. And then after that, they take your blood. And the police now have the power to take your blood. They don't need a qualified medical practitioner to do it. They take your blood, they send it off to the lab for a testing. And if the officer says, Well, I believe you're impaired by a narcotic analgesic, like codeine, and then it comes back, Lo and behold, codeine in your blood? The law says you are impaired and impaired by codeine. And it's presumed that you are. You're basically guaranteed to be convicted unless you rebut that presumption.
0: Yeah, I don't think that's going to withstand a constitutional challenge. Maybe
1: not, but you need to still have the science to back your constitutional challenge.
0: Yep. Oh, I know, I know. Well, we're going to be turning to American uh, American experts because we just don't have those experts in Canada. You and I have gone and done some study there and we've met a bunch of people and it's fascinating and interesting. But But I
1: think, I think we have to be really, really wary because lots of lawyers out there are, you know, mulling around in their heads, these ideas of, of constitutionally challenging this law. And that's great. But you need a proper evidentiary record and foundation to show where this can all go wrong and how this can lead to injustice and how this can lead to wrongful conviction and how this is uh, violating the presumption of innocence. And if you don't have the scientific underpinning and knowledge of the blood testing and you don't get that evidence because you don't know what to ask for, it puts a constitutional challenge to it in jeopardy.
0: Well. I look back at Saint-Ange-Lamoureux, and at the time, I didn't get involved with it. And the reason I didn't get involved with it was because I assumed that there was somebody who was more capable of doing it than me, um, and that my contribution would not have been significant. And that was absolutely foolish for me, because... Well,
1: Saint-Ange was good. It was the companion decisions, maybe, that weren't.
0: I know, but I'm... You know, I was in a position at that time to be able to establish problems with approved instruments for testing uh, breath. And I had the evidence sitting in my office as I do now with, you know, as we've collected with respect to blood. And so I I was in the position to do it, but I wasn't comfortable enough that I was the guy. And I should have got involved at the time, but, you know, we're in a much better position different position now. You and I are in a, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're we're in contact with a lot of the leading people across the country who do this. And we also know all of these experts in the state. So we're in a much better position now. But again, then there's the other thing of mustering the evidence and getting it all together and trying to survive as a lawyer and earn a living and keep your office running at the same time you're trying to do this
1: and also i mean going back to your very first point that you made about sort of prosecutors taking an extreme position if you get a good enough evidentiary record in a trial and you've got you know like most prosecutors are reasonable fair decent human being on the other side they're going to look at that and go shoot i've got to pull the plug i don't have a case anymore yeah and well, so then I mean, you know how do you get all, all the way to the supreme court of canada that's the
0: thing that's why they always start in ontario because the uh, prosecutors always take those extreme positions and uh, you know look at <laughs> look at so many of the cases start from appeal regional police like mm-hmm. uh, you want disclosure cases where should, uh, they didn't I provide really the work disclosures? Get a, getting
1: so called in Ontario. Getting called in Ontario
0: because <laughs> otherwise we're not going to have it. It's not going to happen. Need a billboard in and
1: peel right outside well, the police station. Back
0: to that. I mean, we've had lots of drug impaired cases, but not one of them has ever ended up going to trial.
1: Well, now, there's one I have coming yeah, up in you know Ontario.
0: Oh yeah, you've got one in Ontario. Got one
1: in Ontario. Sure it's enough. by Christmas. Gift to myself.
0: You're going to Ontario for Christmas. Yeah. Oh my goodness!
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I've run trials in Ontario, and I remember actually running a Peel Regional Police trial, and it was one that never would have run in BC. There's no way they would have prosecuted that. In was BC. that your
1: was a, the one with your hilarious judge-related cross-examination question?
0: No, no, that no. was. I think the, you're thinking of one up north terrace okay. or somewhere like that or smithers i can't remember but no 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 the uh, actually was one of the judges in that trio of cases um that uh was mouth alcohol cases from uh ontario oh, okay. master martino i think it yep. is
1: master yeah. martino
0: great uh, case yeah well there's there was a companion cases that were listed in there and it covered various issues and he was a, a judge who had ruled on that yeah no no polish was a separate That's a decision case. yeah no there was there was Three cases that were decided that, but sure. the Master Martino was the Master uh,
1: Martino's is the one everybody cites.
0: Yeah, but it was one of them was in there, and uh, that was the judge I had, and I, I, uh, I could not make any, I could not make sense of him. Um, right. But uh, he acquitted my client in any event, so that was the important <laughs> That's thing. That's all you need. I got to the airport and threw my <laughs> case books in the recycling bin and thought we'll I'm need you, going Roy. back home, and I don't want to go yeah. to Ontario because the prosecutors are. Over the top. You know, Brampton is roughly similar population to Surrey and, um, you know, similar demographic to Surrey. And in Surrey, we've got how many courtrooms there? Like 10? And I mean, I know if they're that. struggling in that. Well, yeah. Uh, Brampton's got like a tower courthouse and there's <laughs> courtrooms know. all over the place and it's packed with people. And I'm thinking to them myself, like, you know, God bless Surrey because they actually have figured out that. You could be a little bit compassionate, make some deals, and not take extreme positions and provide disclosure, and uh, justice will be done.
1: Well, on that note of justice being done, I think that this podcast for this episode.
0: Oh, that's too is bad done. because oh. I really wanted to talk about the RCMP lawsuit and the new class action. I was oh. hoping we'd discuss that. Are we out of time? We are. Uh, well, next week. Next week we'll on be discussing. Off. Yeah, try and remind me because that is a very important thing that's happened. That uh, you know we've seen one class action as a result of uh, of um, uh, sexual discrimination, but the new class action is a is a new thing. It's a fascinating angle on it, and that is basically bullying in the RCMP to to basically uh, subvert justice. So, well, next week on Driving Law, or some future week on Driving Law. Next week on Driving Law with Kyla Lee.
1: Bullying in the RCMP. Yeah. And we're going to talk about THC.
0: Yes, we promised. Them we have to. to. Yeah. We and have you, to get on and it. And you still have some guests who are coming who are fascinating, interesting people. Maybe yeah. more interesting than Hey Now.
1: Probably it'll be uh, two weeks because I'm going on vacation. All
0: right, good. Yeah, but. Enjoy your vacation.
1: Thank you. And uh, tune in next week to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee with Acumen Law Corporation, and this is Paul Doroshenko with Acumen Law Corporation. If you want to reach us, we're available at 604-685-8889 or VancouverCriminalLaw.com.
0: Hey now.